Good evening and welcome to the debut episode of Under the Helmet. I'm your host, Terrence Biggs. Huh, since I'm, I'm guessing a few of you are watching the AAF and it is exciting to see football pretty much going to be round all year and it's, it's, it's a good feeling. Let me give you a quick little rundown on why this podcast exists. Semi-pro, developmental, no matter what you call it, there's a vast population and a demographic of football players that after high school, after college, who still want to continue. Some use this arena as a way to get to Canada, play overseas, play arena league, play indoor. Some want to just continue after school has finished for them. It's a way of kind of remaining close to the game. The semi-pro developmental world is at least, I can say it's interesting because I've covered it for a better part of five years and it is never dull. I've met some very interesting people. I've seen some very good people. I've seen some less than honorable people do hellacious things. But one thing I have always found is that people tend to react to seeing players on the field and hearing those pads collide and just being around the game is just that most magnetic of feeling when no matter what season it is, you're ready to play. Over the next few weeks, we will talk to some of the voices, some of the players, some of the people involved in management surrounding this very intriguing world. As I mentioned, it is the kind of thing that the casual fan may not necessarily know, but it is something that is worth your time, it is worth your effort, and it is worth your attention. Semi-pro is one of those things that you're interested in. And they, in certain spots, it's called developmental because it does develop players, and not just players, but it develops human beings. A lot of these teams are actively involved in their community. A lot of them do special events. A lot of them do a lot of altruistic work in their specific towns and areas. And for me as a writer slash fan slash observer, it's phenomenal to watch how these young men are guided by certain people. Like I said, there are certain people who run teams who may not be the most forthright or decent, but the majority of players are. And they're, the majority are there for the right reasons, and they know that within the confines and context of the sport, there's a brotherhood, there's a collection, there's a menagerie of fundamental trust that exists between players. Now, we have two guests tonight, and one is Matthew Kelly. He was a over like a chief, went to Auburn. Another is Sherm Gillum. Sherm Gillum is, I've known Sherm for a very long time. He is the vice president, general manager of the Crescent City Kings. He is also a a triple-A minor league Hall of Famer. He played guard in Louisiana for a little over 20 years, and Sherm is one of the most honest and down-to-earth people you ever want to meet. Sherm also is one of the most opinionated people you ever meet. We'll definitely dive into the construct of football in Louisiana and the semi-pro league. But before I bring them in, I need to talk about the Commissioner's Kickoff Classic for the APDFL. February 23rd in Phoenix City, Alabama, there are three games. First game, you have the Louisiana Lightning versus the Alabama Tigers. The Lightning played last night, and 
they play the uh, Hurricanes and uh, the Abayu Hurricanes of the SAFL. And sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulties. I was I was getting to the Crescent City Kings versus the Georgia Kings. With Crescent City, you have the kind of defense that just they're nonstop. They they will never stop upfield. And the offense, Coach Washington runs a really tight ship, and he wants to pound the ball and then set up plays deep down the field. Where the Kings right now, the uh, Georgia Kings are the unknown. With a uh, Crescent City pretty much coming off a 91 season and an early playoff exit, early playoff exit. You you can tell they are chomping at the bit to right the wrongs of 2018. And I just I don't see this game being close because on both sides of the ball, the the Kings, across the city, they have they sport a serious advantage for Georgia to play with Crescent City. They need to control the clock because honestly, if they are subject to being forced three and outs, Crescent City is going to run the ball and run the ball and run the ball. And then that'll draw draw the linebackers up. That's when you will see a lot of vertical passing game. And once Crescent City has a lead, they're going to turn that pass rush loose. If they turn that pass rush loose, I can guarantee three things. One, they're going to get home often. Two, they're going to pretty much cause early throws. And three, their secondary is solid enough and possess the kind of ball skills where if they force early throws, you will see the ball going the other way. And that problem, that will be a giant problem for anybody involved. And I just don't, I don't see the, I don't see Georgia really going as far as being able to handle them. But on our line right now, we have Sherm Gillum. Sherm, like I said, is the VP, the GM of the Crescent City Kings, a minor league Hall of Famer, and probably one of the most honest people you will come across in the semi-pro developmental field. Sherm, how are you doing tonight? Um, and I'm doing great. How are you doing uh, tonight, Terry? I am good. I am good. Sherm, it, it, this is the first time we spoke. I have known you for a very long time. It's the first time we've actually had a chance to talk. I got questions because apparently there is intrigue and drama that is occurring within the developmental, but bef before we get to that, I want to give the folks a little background. You've you played over uh, 20 years. What was the major transition going from the field to the front office? How did you think well, about it, or what? That. I'm sorry. How did well, you well, make well, that let chance? Me, let me, okay. Let me start by saying it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And, and uh, of course, the first time speaking to you on the phone is the opportunity to be on your podcast. Uh, to answer your question, basically, um, once my career started winding down, it just became a matter of, one, the obvious old age, uh, where my body was just taking a lot longer to heal from game to game, and the the generational divide between commitment and the non-commitment. Um, my very last game was in a championship loss, and it seemed like to some players it just wasn't a big deal. To me, it was a big deal, and I think that night I kind of made up my mind that 
you know, maybe this was it. And then, of course, I was pre presented with the opportunity uh, with the Crescent City Kings. And so I figured I could stay in the game without actually being in the game. So from there, um, myself, Coach Washington, Devin, and uh, Brian at the time, we formed the Crescent City Kings, and we went from there. Now, I know that, like I said, you you have all the jewelry. You have rings like you would not believe. Now, when you look at the modern player, because you played in the era, you, you played in recent enough where you can say that you played in the modern era too. What's the fundamental difference between the when you first started as far as players and now? What is like the what is the mentality shift? Well, when I first started playing, we practiced five days a week. We played on a Saturday. Uh, we had zero problem with players traveling. We had zero problems with players missing home games. Um, players were more apt to learn. Uh, their positions, their assignments, and they went out and executed them better. And as time went by, uh, practice dwindled down from five days a week to three days a week to two days a week. And, of course, the shift in time comes to shift in ob people's obligations. And the younger, younger generation either wasn't for giving up a great part of their week to practice to starting families younger in life and having to commit to that. I mean, there was just a plethora of things that made it a lot different from when I started to when I ended. Um, as I said, we, we had adults that were a lot more committed to being uh, athletes. These days, we have some who are serious about their crafts, some who actually want to put in the work to try to make something better, their athletic situation. And then you have those that just want to do something. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's those folks that, you know, can sour a game, can sour a team. It just, you know, it's just a, a great shift. And it, and it came over time. It just didn't happen overnight. As, as my 24 years expanded, I could see the gradual reduction in how players approached semi-pro, minor league, or you know, whatever you call it these days. Now, you're from New Orleans, and a lot of our audience may not know how deep and how talented the football base is in uh, Greater New Orleans. It is per capita, one of the fastest growing and one of the most deep talented. If you look at any NFL roster and you see the hometowns or the areas, a lot of them tend to come from New Orleans. It is it is an underrated commodity as far as talent. Being with the Kings, you have other minor league teams. You have, like you said, you have the Lightning, you have the Rampage. How difficult is it to recruit? Um, it's extremely difficult because a lot of players stay loyal to where they are. It's hard to, you know, maybe no matter the success that you have, convince players that uh, maybe a different home is better. Uh, a lot of younger players are willing to come in and compete for spots. So if they're starting somewhere else, their situation may not be 
better, but at least in the plane. Whereas opposed to, you know, if you may go somewhere else where there's a winning tradition, you fear sitting on a bench, you fear being a backup player, role player, things like that. So it's a makes it difficult when you think about players coming from other organizations. You really haven't had a problem as far as recruiting outside of the semi-pro pool. Um, matter of fact, we've had players move from as far as Shreveport, Texas, to play for the Kings. Um, so the more you put yourself out there in social media, uh, on you know, whether it be TV or radio, uh, it reaches it reaches these young players, and they, they you know they're it's about what the Kings about, and eventually decide that they want to call them. So it's you know there's not that many that's willing to do that. Actually, you know if you're not seeing them, because of course. You know, with moving comes the responsibility to start all over again. So, as I said, pulling out of the kind of pool that's already in the organization is difficult. Now, if you want to start picking five schools, it may take them a little bit longer to adjust to be a special talent to kind of step up to this. If you can if you're type down, you can step from school to semi pro. Then you should be in the college or collegiate institution. If not, then you know you can be gradually coached into doing this. But if you're if you're a special talent and not you know, not necessarily advised to just leave high school and start a pro career, you you take your chances in college, on skills, and uh, you know, hope for the next level after that. No, I agree with that. Now, we have another guest on the line. We have uh, Matthew Kelly. Matthew was played at Auburn, was a former Oblaka uh, Chief. Matthew, how are you tonight? All right. How are you guys doing today? Not bad, Matthew. Sherman and I were just talking about how difficult it is to bring so much talent in such a small area. You're from Alabama. Alabama right now in the APDFL boasts, I think, Ten teams. How do you think that's going to go? How do you think that's going to go in um, out there in Alabama? I'm taking the wait, this uh, wait and see approach. But um, let's just use the uh, the team East Alabama Predators and the Tuskegee uh, Airmen as one. A lot of talent in that pool. That is a talent-rich area, especially when it comes to college football and even pro players from. The state, they will cover the area from the state line where Alabama and Georgia meet all the way over into Montgomery and the Prattville area. And Tuskegee and East Alabama are, uh, of course, in Tuskegee and Opelika, respectively. And they're, um, they're both, that's a 15-mile radius that, that is trying to pull from the same pool. And... Uh, then you have Birmingham. I think they have three or four teams in their general area, and they're all pulling from the from the same pool again. And it's just going to be a difficult. Uh, I don't think it's going to be difficult. It kind of a lot of times you end up with two teams. It's going to be top heavy. They're, they're going to going to go there, and it's going to be uh, using like again. I'll use Tuskegee. 
I mean, they like an all-star team right now. Uh, if you go back to the top 50 players, and I think they have about 12 of them from last year's list. And if you even go back a year or two, they have a, probably about 22 to 23 of the players. And then you have, uh, I th with just doing that, I think it's just kind of difficult because some everybody's not going to buy into the same system. So it's kind of you have to take a wait and see approach to how to just get people there. That's that's the biggest. That's my biggest take on it. Um, I I agree. No, sure. I've seen it where where a team can be dominant. True, I agree. Sure, sure. To you now, we talked about how the recruiting structure in New Orleans is difficult because you have the Kings, you have the Lightning, you have the Rampage, you have a lot of player movement. The Kings are notoriously for being more. I don't know, like more structured than other teams. Do you think that players, some, not all, want the that easier path? And what do you think about the player changes and shifting from team to team from year to year? Well, players change because of their, once again, their situation with an organization. They may not be getting the playing time that they expect. Uh, they may run out of favor with coaches. Or uh, some just don't like the way that uh, some coaches run their programs. Um, I know that uh, Coach Washington is big on conditioning. I mean, he runs before practice and after practice. You know, in the summertime, it can be quite brutal. And a lot of folks, uh, a lot of players, they just don't want to deal with that. And um, I don't understand it. Well, I understand it, but I, I you know, Coach Campbell's history of uh, winning games in that style speaks for itself. Uh, we played in the summer league where we basically dominated for the most part. Uh, we would still fall short when it absolutely counted. But we were dominant because of his coaching philosophy and his stance on conditioning. Uh, when you think about the talent down here, the greatest, the greatest talent we can have is speed. And the Kings boast some of the fastest players in, in Southeast Louisiana, uh, without a doubt. But as far as players switching from team to team, yeah, it just goes back to the lack of commitment to oneself, commitment to one's organization. It's, you know, it's just it's disgusted over time, and now it's. Uh, kind of hard to say how to reverse the trend because even a team that even for championship you still have unhappy players from, from our 2014 season to our next we, we had to replace 30 players for whatever reason uh, after our national championship season we still had to replace another 20 something players for various reasons and it just you know, either players feel like they didn't maxed out their potential. Maybe they feel like they're not going anywhere. Maybe maybe the stress of football in their home life is getting to them. It's, it's a number of different things. And if you're not if you're not backing up players with money, then it's uh, you know it's just hard to keep them committed. And I mean anything anything east of Oklahoma. 
it really is getting paid out of yourself. <laughs> so you, know, you have to deal with you have to deal with incomings and take them and haul them in and uh, strut, you know, make them fit into your system and go at go at it from there. And we've been fortunate because we have the coaching and we've been able to keep a, a core of players that you know we can win with. So you know, until uh, until we go 500 one season. You know, I can't necessarily complain. What I will complain about is our lack of production once it becomes the second season, which is playoffs, the championship. So I, I agree. Uh, that, I'm sorry. Now, now, Matt, like you, like you, you played with the Chiefs and you went to Auburn and you, you know, you saw how big time college football works and you saw how the world of developmental works. As somebody who's played in both worlds, how do you deal with the ego of someone who, let's just say, you know, thinks they are better than what they actually are? How do you check that person? With that person, that that comes again, as Sharon said, with the with the culture. Um, we every year, it's been teams I've been on arena ball, college stuff like that, and in the development world, where you know, like you said, there's somebody who swears they're the best thing going, and then they don't show up in the game. And as we said last year, film film don't lie. And uh, I love to watch film. I love to show uh, people. And everybody doesn't want to buy into that because you find out who's that person. You find out about those people real quick when you when you try to correct them. How coachable are they? Do do they listen or do they – or is it the next person next to them? Well, this person didn't do that. This person didn't do this. That's fine. But, I, but how we check that is if you can't – if you can't be coachable, we can't play. We can't win. We only go as far as the weakest person that's out there. And so, uh, a lot of times with that, we we move on. We we replace that person. We put that. You know, we have a steady competition with that. Um, as Sharon said, it's it's all about culture. A lot of a lot of players I've seen after championship seasons, like you said, they they disappear. They'll go play. Those type of players usually will go play for somebody that didn't have such a great season because they feel like, oh, I'm coming from here. They're, I'm going to go over here and be the big fish in the small pond. And they don't They don't write that check. They don't want to be checked. They don't want to want to work. They don't want to strive. And uh, just like I preach to my high school kids, everybody wants to play college football. Everybody wants to win the Heisman. Everybody wants to win that championship, but everybody don't want to put in the work. And that that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest thing I think is wrong uh, in the development uh, football aspect. You have too many people who you will have a great program like Crescent City, um, East Alabama, Tuskegee, Prattville, uh, the Dynasty, and a, a bunch of other uh, teams that I hadn't mentioned, such as uh, the Nashville Storm is one that's not even over in our league. But they have great programs, but you'll see players um, jump ship because, oh, the coach, is making, the coach is asking more of me than what I've expected. Or I want to go play with the homeboy side where I feel like my homeboy is going to get me the ball 100 times. 
So a lot of times with those players, you you kind of you kind of just rule them out. You let them show themselves because they can't take criticism. They're not coachable. So a lot of times they buy out. So a lot of times you 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 raise the expectations for them because of how they feel about themselves, and they'll they'll eliminate themselves a lot. Now now, Sherm, like when it when backing up to Matt's point, he makes excellent points about how he sees how there are certain guys who have an overinflated sense of self. When it comes down to Go ahead, get your I'm going out the door so when it comes down to how up you know how in certain organization it is composed. You've seen a lot of organizations come and go in the world of developmental, even in the last few years. A lot of teams fold in regardless of league. What do you think is the major failing of organizations when they fold? Well, the the the, the main the main thing that that that, that we're wiping organization out is not being fully financed. Uh, if you're not if you can't uh, compete financially throughout the season, you're going to fold. Unless you're playing in a league that you know each team is within a half an hour of each other. Of course, uh, in the APDFL, the travel. One, if you can't afford to travel, if you can't afford to provide uh, proper uniforms, if you cannot afford to uh, pay officials, then you, I mean, you're going to fall. And there are a lot of owners out there who put the who put the office on the players to help pay for these things. Uh, we we travel. Uh, our players basically don't pay to get on a bus. Uh, we'll feed them a meal. They'll, eat, they'll they'll provide the second meal. We do everything possible that we can to stay out of players' pockets. Uh, this was the one thing that we felt we felt would attract talent throughout uh, throughout this area was the fact that a lot of teams made you pay to travel, made yourself tickets uh, for home games and things like that. They're not prepared for the financial long haul. So we do what we must. We we have fundraisers, um, we throw parties, we you know, we do certain events for holidays and such as Mardi Gras. So we, we try to make sure that we can provide for our players without constantly asking them to dip in, sell this, sell that. Now, whatever you know, we tell players, whatever we raise in the fundraiser goes right back into the team. Uh, I'm no profit, no one does. But that's the main reason. Uh, second reason is for coaching, um, just, you know, there are just some people out there that people would rather not play for. But the main reason is if, a, if an organization, your owners, are not financially prepared to, to bring you through that hall, you can start losing players in a hurry because players are already trying to take care of their families. This is why most of them don't make practice because they have to work and now have to choke up change and get to to go and play in Florida. I gotta pay to get on the bus. I gotta pay to get in the van. I gotta you know, buy gas for my own car and things like that. Uh that, that's the that's the number one thing that I think an organization your owners are not financially prepared. I agree. Matt, now to you, when you've, I'm sure that when you were with the Chiefs and you played with other teams, you've had to deal with 
a forfeit. When you are ready to play and you have your mind right, you have your mind focused, you are sternly, intently ready to put on that helmet, walk on that field, and start cracking some skulls. What is the feeling that you go through when you you come to the realization that the team that you are supposed, supposed to play and scheduled to play bails on you? What's that thought process like? Um, it becomes disappointing a lot of times, especially with, and I know Sam can attest to this, a lot of teams know that they're forfeiting early in the week. But they'll wait to Saturday at 10 o'clock to say, hey, we're going to forfeit or we're not going to be able to make it. And, you know, the the field's been paid for, referees been paid for, lights been paid for, and it becomes disappointing. And with some players, it becomes frustrating because it becomes every couple of weeks you're seeing, oh, God, I'm, we're about to forfeit. We're about to see this team forfeit. Or we keep saying, oh, we hadn't heard from the owners. We hadn't we hadn't heard from any of the players. Uh, one of the players coming and, and teams. I mean, it becomes just it becomes nerve wracking sometimes because some people change their work schedule. Some people might say, "Hey, me and my family want to do this this weekend, but we canceled for this game." So then, uh, as as Sharon said, it comes from you get the, that outside pressure from other forces because people are like, "Well, dang, we had known this was happening. We could have did this." Or we could have planned for this, or we could have reached out to another team and scheduled a game. And uh, so, so it it becomes uh, frustrating a lot of the time. And you just like, oh God, here we go again. And and it's some teams that 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 you know, you've seen them travel before, and you know when it comes late in the season, oh uh, they're not gonna play. But they'll you know they they won't say anything to Saturday morning like, hey, we're not gonna play yet. And it, it's just a it's a headache. But then you get you also get some teams that which uh, I've experienced this in two leagues where they'll forfeit when they got to play the top team, and they're just like, hey, we'll save we'll save our players, and uh, we'll forfeit this one just because uh, we already know we'll make the playoffs right here, maybe the last seed in versus. No, we're not going to go out here and play for position, which other teams might be depending on them to go play for this and pull an upset. So it, it's it's a it's something that you don't like to deal with, and when you ask and stuff like that, and then your coach tell you you take them, you about to walk out, and he's like, "Hey, we don't have a game, guys." It's just like, I, man, how many times we going to do this? I agree. Can I, I elaborate think that... on it, Terry? Sure, go ahead, Sharon. Well, when when we joined the APDFL, we 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 made it clear to uh, Bernard Hunt that we wanted to play only as top only as top teams, and we understood Absolutely. that any structured organization, any any organization that was always in contention for the playoffs, were going to be there. I, mean, I didn't want to be Absolutely. sitting there looking down my schedule, staring at a team that's only six, and they got to come to some place to know they're going to get hammered. That you know, so whether it be the the dynasty, the East Alabama Prayer, we always want the the cream of the crop. We would always want the best teams because one, we know at home they're coming, and the same for them. They know that the Kings are going to be here. So absolutely, we try to we try to keep away from uh, the bottom dwellers, as I would call it. 
Oh, I mean, um, to Sherman. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. To Sherman's point, I, he makes a good point. When they played in the summer league, I do remember the Kings going to Memphis with 17 guys and absolutely. winning. Absolutely. And I remember that uh, I was actually in South Carolina at the time, and um, I knew Sherman them from the previous year when I played in the GDFL after uh, my arena season. And uh, I think I think that year before y'all won, and that's simply y'all went to like the third round, right, Sherman? Yeah, that's correct. And, now, uh, now, real quick with Sherman. I'll, and then I'll bounce back to Matt. But Sherm, like we mentioned before, Louisiana, especially the the New Orleans area, has those that depth of talent where you have guys everywhere. When you guys played in the summer league, your main focus rival was the uh, Bayou Vipers. Those games were hard hitting, physical, and fun to watch. Now it seems now that you're in the APDFL, your main rival are the Lightning. I know that the our rampage are also in the area, but we're not really sure what they're going to bring to the table just yet, but we're going to focus on the Lightning. That game now, now that it has an added type of importance because one of your former players is now the uh, quarterback of the Lightning, going into that game, do you see it any differently, or is it just a rivalry game, or is it just a game that the Kings need to win? Well, the, the only thing that we'll prepare for differently uh, when it comes to the Lightning is containing uh, Melvin Davis, who's, let me say, is an exceptional, actually an outstanding talent. Uh, so that would be the only thing that uh, we'll have to adjust anything towards. We faced Melvin Davis a couple of years back. So the blueprint is there on how we can contain him. Uh, but Melvin has an escapability that's unmatched on this level of football. Uh, so that would probably be our biggest emphasis going into that week. Other than that, uh, man for man, line, we think we match up well with the Lightning. Uh, it's you know, of course, it's being a, a crosstown rival. It's going to be hard hitting. There's going to be a lot of trash talk the week before. But uh, in the end, it's always a good football game. It's always a good competitive, um, clean football game. Surprisingly enough, uh, we've never had a true problem uh, with any extracurricular activity on the field. Uh, Mike Anderson runs a good program over there as far as uh, discipline with his players. Uh, Animal keeps a tight grip on the discipline of his players. So uh, we look forward to another good game. We definitely look forward to coming out in and, uh, you know, the best team that wins. Yeah, I agree. Now, Matt, you're in Alabama. Right now you have pretty much the Blackhawks and the Airmen are pretty much the odds-on favorite to be the best team in that state. Would you agree? I would I would agree that. I definitely, I would uh Agree to that. Blackhawks are bringing back a very stout defense, and um, I think their offense still going to be led by uh, Chris Calhoun, was who was a, a very exceptional quarterback. Um, the Airmen, as I said, they really loaded up. Great job to uh, you have to give kudos to John Black, who was also one of my former teammates, and. Um, 
one of the first guys that introduced me to semi-pro as, as he's done a great recruiting job. Um, they're going to they're gonna be very, I think, explosive, and they're going to cause problems for teams. Um, I'm interested to see them versus the Blackhawks and also them versus the East Alabama Predators, which uh, that game there is going to be a – you're going to have 50 players on each side that have played against each other since junior uh, – since peewees. But um, definitely right now the eyes-on favorite has to be the Blackhawks and, and the Airmen. And um, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in watching both of those games. I think it's going to be uh, – we're going to really find out about some teams, and I think it's going to all have playoff implications along with um, the, the wins for the division, that who's going to win the division. Uh, it's going to come out of those games. I agree. Sure. When you look at the – Kings, as far as going forward in 2019, they, like every team in the EPDFL, they have their eyes solely trained on the Mississippi Dynasty. You were the last team to defeat them. What is well, it about... Oh, go ahead. I'm, not, I'm, I'm listening. What is it about that game that, like, that separates itself from any other game on your schedule? Well, you're talking about taking on the time champion. Uh, you knock them off, and it gives you a sense of measure on where you are in your season. Of course, beating a champion in the regular season doesn't really garner you anything except regular season bragging rights. Um, you want to follow it up by your greatest, your better accomplishment would be knocking them all out of the playoffs because they're on the outside of the bracket, and to defeat the dynasty to go on and take a championship would be extremely sweet. So, beating someone in, in the regular season is nice. Beating the two-time defending champion is great, but the rest of the hall. I mean, of course, the dynasty is our second game of the season. We can't necessarily hang our hat on the season just because we beat the dynasty. So, you know, we still have eight other opponents that we have to go through in order to reach where they come from. So, you know, we, to beat them, it would just have to be another game to us. We just have to look forward to our next opponent. And later on down the line, if we meet in the playoffs, uh, Conference championship go to the champions, you know, to go to the big game. Then, um, you know, we have to buckle down for a fight. And if we survive that fight, it'll be much sweeter at that point. I agree. Matt, now, speaking of the dynasty, so as someone who's played, and all of us have, wh where would you say, or how would you game plan? What three things would you do to ensure that whatever you're playing for, say if, say if you had equal talent, how would you scheme for them? For the for the dynasty? Yes, sir. Uh, Mike. First off, I have to say this: Mike is a great coach. So uh, you you come out with a with a plan, and you never know what Mike is thinking. You know, speaking from experience, playing them, that was the last team I lost to in the 
the APDFL and the national championship, we came out and, you know, we were totally focused on stopping the Stevens. Well, the problem with that was they came out in something we went against what we've done, and they hit us right in the throat off the first place. Um, what I what I would do is tell I tell any team don't change what got you to where you're at. Don't don't switch to where you're at. Um, as the Steven goes, they go. Although they are a great team game, try to get a little pressure there. But you still have Anthony Williams that's out there. You you have to you can't do anything. You can't gamble with them because they're not going to do anything to lose the game. So you you have to play a flawless game and um, contain their defense. Uh, they have uh, probably the nastiest defense I've seen. Um, they they play good team ball, and you have to you have to match that. You can't get frustrated. They don't get down. They you know they can get down by twenty, and they're gonna do what they do and will their way back. Uh, so the biggest thing with game planning with them is try to contain uh, Le Steven and 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 that offense. Uh, make block your assignment uh, against their defense, and don't make too many mistakes because they're gonna make you pay. Those are the three right. three keys right. to, yeah, to, to them. Um, right. I agree. Like, Sherm, like, a similar question but a little bit different, where I see a similarity between the Kings and, and the Dynasty as far as one, one respect. They're built from the line of scrimmage out. They're, both teams, Kings and Dynasty, both have strong offensive lines and ferocious front sevens that won't stop generating pressure. When you guys play them and you will play them again, as a former lineman, Hall of Famer, do you look at the game differently when you see a, a dominant offensive line versus a dominant defense? What do you you key on? Um, well, understanding that the, the dynasty is a run-heavy team with run-heavy built linemen, um, it's not necessarily your D-line that makes the difference because you your D line is making a way for your linebackers to make make plays. Uh, so if that if that front four of your D line can can hold forth and allow the linebackers to do what they do, uh, this, you can you can basically contain the the dynasty. The one thing we didn't fear, we didn't necessarily fear the passing game. Uh, and not to talk trash, but for for it not necessarily being an opening kickoff and the safety, things would have looked a lot different that game. So, um, within waiting circumstances, that not a not a not a, side, uh, not a team like the way the game ended up. We, we you know we ended up the game on top, but um, we understood as time went on that the, the dynasty relies heavily upon the run. They run the the pistol and they have a they, they have a powerhouse uh, running back and they have some speed and, and they have some speed back there. But if if your D line, if your if your front four can hold forward and don't get blown backwards, then they allow your linebackers to come up and make plays. 
But those linebackers have to be shifty and they have to feel them holes ready to hit because, uh, man, they'll shake and get on upfield in a second. I agree. You have their, their – just with, like, Ellis and Roy Williams and guys like that, they have that – they have that combination of just scary brute force in Ellis and you have the speed around the edge in Williams. Matt, let me ask you a question. When it comes down to right now in the state of Alabama, on any APDFO, just being from Alabama, in that state right now, who are who is the – best offensive and best defensive player in Alabama right now? Um, defensive, if he comes back this year, it's J-Rob hand down, Justin Robinson. Uh, as you know, his stats were off the, off the charts last year. Ridiculous. Um, uh, every time you looked up, he was on the ball. Ever calls and stuff. He also, you know, he comes in on offense, he punts, he he, he was all around beast. Um when it comes to offensive players, you would have to I would have to give it to Carl Davis right now. Um between and him and Chris are neck and neck at it. Uh I don't know if Kelly Marsh is still playing with the Blackhawks, but he is a game changer out wide, and so is Rock, uh, uh, Rakeem Scott. Scott down as as well. I don't I don't know. Uh, I know he's still playing, but I would have to give Carl just the advantage right now. But uh, definitely uh, Chris is right there on his heels. And if J-Rod is not coming back, because I'm not sure if he's signed anywhere, um, I'm going to have to go with uh, Patrick Campbell just because you win in the trenches or Ken Wells that was because uh, I don't think Bubba's playing this year. That would be another one uh, down from the Mobile area. The Dolphins now. Uh, yeah, the Dolphins, and I don't know if he's playing or if he's just coaching. But it would it would definitely have to be one of those three. It's kind of kind of hard to pick those because they each bring each all those all those players I I just named all bring something different to the table. And it's uh it, it's kind of saying you know some things don't show up on on the stat sheet. Putting people in the right position, taking blowing up a lead block that springs your whole defense. All that stuff doesn't show up and. Those players have it, but uh, definitely right now you have to go Patrick Campbell's uh, or Ken Wells. They're both and Bubba. They're all proven, and they're they're right they're right there. So it's kind of hard to pick them, but I'm gonna go with Patrick uh, just off of what he did last year. And the other, I mean, it's one A, one B, and one C. So I agree, Sherm. Now being around the Kings, you have a loaded offense and a loaded defense. Where do you see I'm gonna ask a similar question but kinda of different. Where who are the Kings most underrated offensive player and underrated defensive player? Our most underrated offensive player would have to be um, 
Dre, um, who, who plays excellent on both sides of the ball when we need to fill in that uh, linebacker. But Dre, who shares time with uh, LaJava, uh, they're both excellent running backs. Um, but uh, Dre is a workhorse. Uh, we also have another young man that came in that uh, played uh, played his collegiate career at Western Michigan, Glennis Thompson. Um, he's going to be an unknown, but I believe he's going to do something special for us. Uh, as far as on the defensive side of the ball, I think uh, every year uh, Luke Corris is pretty much overlooked but does a lot. Um, Luke does a lot of the little things. And, I, and, and listen, we, we're talented across the line, so uh, I mean, I'm not jading anyone, but Luke, Luke, uh, Luke seemed to make things happen when we need him. When we need him too. So, hey, Luke, um, Luke, Luke is the quietest guy off the field, but on the field, his his plays talk for him. I've seen him be able to shed and get to the get get to the perimeter and make the play after having to to fish through a screen. He had, he got through two blocks, still made the play for a loss. He is the kind of guy where you may not see him show up as far as like he's not the self-promoting type, but on game days, and you know, Sherman, I've watched just about every single game the Kings have played in the next last five years, four years. He shows up and he's there. He's there in every play and he shows up. Matt, let me ask you this: You saw the Patriots as somebody not in Alabama. Uh, let me ask you this question. When the Patriots were 0-4 and they were 0-4, outside of Kyle Caldwell, mm-hmm. a lot of these players will end up on new teams. Of the former Patriots that you didn't mention, which one will have the uh, greatest impact on his new team? Um, uh, it'll have to be out of um, Denzel Waters, which he's with a new team. He's in uh, with the with the Chilton uh, Tigers, okay. and I just think just because he's he's. A, he knows what they expect to come through the league, so I'm looking at it from a leadership standpoint. And probably, uh, probably Yancey Powell. He's a uh, he's actually actually I take that back. Yancey will have an impact, but uh, Vincent, uh Titus that played running back. He's he's gonna give the airmen a new di- uh, a new dimension or something they um, didn't have that was very strong last year with a running game. So both of them showing up airmen I think will have the greatest part. But Denzel just strictly going to a brand new program. I think uh, from a leadership standpoint, able to getting them ready, kind of telling them what to expect. He could he could be the X factor uh, if he takes on that leadership role for the uh, Chilton uh, Tigers. All right, now I mean, Sherm, let me ask you this: someone who has 
traveled extensively for being in this game, being around the game for so long. I'm sure you've had your share of awful road experiences as far as being in awful stadiums or awful fields. To your recollection, what is the worst field you've you've seen either as a VEP or as a player? Like the worst conditions that you've had to have your team play in, either on the field or being in the front office? Hmm. Um, I would say the majority of our of our of the worst were our preparation uh, as far as players having to get dressed outside um, up in um, Tupelo, Mississippi. We had to get dressed. We had to sit around waiting for a few hours in a hundred degree heat and changing in the woods. I was it was pretty horrible. The field conditions where there were parked cars maybe ten feet from the from the playing field, uh, just unsafe uh, as far as the condition of the field. It wasn't really that bad, but I mean, we've uh, you know, our biggest problem is getting to places where there's no locker rooms um, and just no accommodations for, for our players to, to get ready. And we we don't arrive at a stadium uh, 30 minutes before game time and hop off a bus. We get out there. We're always in town a couple of hours before game time. So when, when we get to the stadium, we want to stretch out. We want to kind of relax and get taped up and let them jostle around a while and then get dressed. And, but uh, there are a lot of stadiums out there that just don't provide for that luxury. Uh, we have, you know, of course, we share the same stadium with the Lightning. We have air conditioned locker rooms and things like that. But uh, all in all, playing surfaces, there's been a few um, up in Arkansas. We've played on, it looked like, a field that someone took a lawnmower and just cut 100 yards out in the middle of where, and we played a football game there. We, I've seen my share over the years. But our, our main problem is... You know our preparation accommodations as far as getting dressed and things like that. So, Matt, let me ask you this: on the back of that question, you've seen probably horrendous conditions yourself. Being someone who has played at various levels, what is the worst locker room as far as the condition of locker room and the just the atmosphere you've had to go in? Uh, um. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh. College-wise, <laughs> probably the pink locker room in Arkansas. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's the it's the, the 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 mindset. It's just like, yeah, we're gonna paint this, and you just like, man, I'm looking at a pink wall trying to get ready for football. Uh, but in the in the development level, it has to be between uh, Goodwater, Alabama. And then um, when we played at Emerald Coast, uh, the Emerald Coast Scorpions, Coast Scorpions that used to be in the league, um, those were probably the worst two. Good ones, like certain said, or I've had experience with, like might just cut out the 100 yards. Well, they didn't even cut the, the 100 yards out. It was like a it was like a stadium if you had been walking through the woods and you just stumbled upon it, and you just like, oh, this used to be a football stadium. And... Uh, the lines were all over the 
place where they had to quickly try to draw some lines. Um, out of bounds, Lillard went toward the uh, <laughs> the fence. I know our running back had ran uh, out of bounds, and you, we didn't even know he was out of bounds. He just kept going because the referees didn't know he was out of bounds either. And to, uh, they came back and showed us. And then with Emerald Coast, it was just we didn't have any locker rooms, anything. We were actually getting dressed on the baseball field. And uh, like Sherm said, uh, in the programs I've been, I've been fortunate to be there playing some good programs. We're trying to be there, you know, three hours before game time. We have a, a itineraries. You know, this is what time we getting take. This is what time we getting dressed. This is what time you going to the field. Straight, everything is mapped out until kickoff. And um, you know, when you when you get those facilities where you don't have all that, you don't have the locker room. Um, We've been fortunate where we travel with trainers that make sure people are taped up properly or are braced up properly, make sure that everything's in regulation. When we don't have those types of facilities, kind of throws a, a damper into it because we can't figure out. They're like, man, I don't know where I'm going to set you up and make sure I can do this right and all the other stuff. So those are probably the, the uh, three worst I've ever been in. <laughs> Now, Sherm, now as someone who has seen the game from the field and now the front office, I'm sure you've had to deal with your share of semi-pro slash minor league politics as far as dealing with leagues and organizations, as far as leagues and administrations of leagues. How do you keep such calm when you know that certain teams may have a leg up as far as dealing with the CEO of a league. How do you keep that balance of being calm and knowing that something stupid is about to happen? Well, ultimately, we understand that uh, games are won and lost on on the football field, uh, and, and you either have the talent to match what's going on, or you don't. And you know, either you're going to win or you're going to lose. Uh, there, are, there are teams that are coddled by league commissioners. Um, teams that are favorited with favorable schedules, uh, not necessarily the AP, the FL. Um, um, generally speaking, the former league we come from, uh, it was just uh, it was just always set up to where that one specific team had uh, a great advantage, and, and teams that teams, I I I feel like this. If you are a top-tier team, you should be playing top-tier teams. You should not finish the season with uh, two forfeits and then two no, you know, non-contests and then your ultra-rested for a playoff run. And, and, and this is what we found with a lot of top teams in, in leagues. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's incredible. And how I keep my cool is by understanding that, one, I'm not, uh, I'm not a regional director. Uh, all I do is manage my organization, manage it the best that I can. The head coach and the coaching staff understand that we have to prepare the team for whatever's going to happen. We understand where officials may be horrible, uh, and they have to prepare them to keep their, keep their cool whenever they feel something's not going their way. Um, I have to understand that I don't, you know, I don't run a league. 
I don't have uh, much of a say-so, so we have to stay prepared on the football field for whatever's going to come. Now, if, uh, you know, there are always league meetings where we can voice our, voice our displeasure, our opinion on certain matters, and if it's not brought up then, then, you know, one has to take it that you're all satisfied with the way things are going, but it has to be the masses on who understands who understands what everyone's looking at, not just one person speaking up and it being dispelled as, oh, he's just sour because they lost, you know, whatever. So uh, if we can take care of it on the football field, it sort of becomes a moot point, but we still have to deal with it because um, if, a top, if a top team is still being treated um, with last three schedules, play schedules, what have you, then it's, it's a problem. But we get what we get because it's what we ask for. It's what we want to, you know, we always tell our players we're going to put them up against the best competition because we don't want them being bored. Um, we want them always ready to go out on the field and, and give their best. So if that's not if that's not what every top team wants, then, you know, you're just looking for an easy way to a ring or some semblance of success. That's, that's not for us. Now, Matt, where's like if you could right now wave a magic wand and implement three new rules in the APDFL right now, what would they be and why? I think Matt got cut off. All right, Sherm, if you could implement three sorry, rules in that. I'm sorry about that. All right. I was going to, uh, I hit the, the mute uh, button. I'm sorry about that. Um, three rules, that's, that's, that's tough because we, we're playing the college rules. But if we uh um, Or three changes. I would or say three. What, three changes? Mm -hmm. uh, neutral ref. I, 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 do, I do think we need uh, uh, just a lead set of ref because I think some of them is kind of, with the uh, it's kind of you know going to your local ref association and, and seeing that if they can do it, I I think that that would help with a lot of stuff. Um, the the visor rule, although I know I'm trying to catch some flack from players with the with the visor rule, but I think that the clear visors just like. We're going to play college rules all the way across. It needs to be there. And a lot of people don't realize uh, when I played college ball, it was often we had the orange visors, the amber color visors, same year as Miami had them. Uh, they made us take them off because it was a safety rule because you couldn't see if somebody had a concussion. You know, a lot of times you can look in the eyes and you can pull them out and say, hey, we need to examine you. Well, with that, that dark visor, you can't really uh, see that. And. Uh, Stadiums should be, uh, I think, home fields or stadiums should be turned in prior to uh, when they're playing so everybody can kind of get a look and see if everybody's on the same part. And I, and I know that everybody can't get the same thing, but it, it's, all, it's all about uh, just ensuring that the, that the field is in good safety conditions. Um, Players can get dressed in time, and that you have working lights and stuff like that. Too often you get there, 
and you know, uh, we had a experience where a team had. <laughs> Uh, y'all ever seen the road construction on the side when they're working at night? Yes. They use those big lights to light up the field. Oh no! So you you, <laughs> you can imagine how <laughs> how bad <laughs> that was because you know we was like man we could have played at at two o'clock <laughs> and and not uh, starting at seven and sitting down. So those 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 would be the the three big changes. Um, I would get because really, other than that, as a player, you, I, I come from the, I was called in the old school. I can't worry about the referees. I can't worry about the politics. I can't worry about the field conditions at the end of the day. But, you know, I leave that to the coaches and, and the management. All I do is go out and do my job, and that's to be the best player on the field and represent my organization. There you go, Sherman. If you could, if you had three changes, what what three changes would they be? Um, I would I would go from a collegiate system to a professional system because it's amateur professional, not amateur to amateur. Uh, so if you're gonna if you're gonna go up one level, then you know the ultimate level is the professional league. So I would definitely change that, and I would make. Uh, scheduling more compatible across the board and I would make sure that uh, if you have regional directors any anyone above uh, anyone that's in a in, in a directorship for the league I don't think should be a member or an owner of a team a coach of a team anyone that has anything to do with the team um, not necessarily because you're running into something where someone's doing something favorable towards themselves, but it just takes away that that whole premise, that whole presence that it could be. So I would go more to uh, in NFL, you know, NFL rules, NFL scheduling where it's home and away. I would take away your your, um, your regional directors being coaches or our owners and uh, you know just but that's my opinion and you know it is what it is I think for me just as a, a writer and observer of all this I would the first thing I would do is I know that it's it's in the league bylaws and I know that you know the league tries to enforce it but some of these teams with some of this whack Facebook live as far as Posting some of this game film is ridiculous. It's it's awful. Like you can't sit there and watch a game because you don't know what the hell you're watching. You're like, um, I just saw like a grainy screen of a of a deep out that just faded into people talking over it. And it's tough to track players as far as being able to document their film. Like Matt said, and Sherm, you agree. Film film doesn't lie. And when we compiled that list last year, I had a lot of people pretty upset that, oh, you know, I had this stats. But yet if you're not filling out the stats as far as going on the league website or if you're not providing film that we can actually observe and watch you, you, you can tell us that you have – somebody last year had 29 tackles, right, 71 assists. That's impossible. <laughs> How do you assist on 71 tackles and 29 solo ones? Where's the film? And I think film is going to be the determining factor and the, the metric that will be used 
and that's not on the league. The league has told teams, y'all need to do this. It's on some of these teams who, this is going to be my, my little rant, but this is my complaint. When I see guys and I see teams and I see owners run their miles on social media who sit there and say, well, you know, I have this flyer, but yet you can't tape your own games. Right. You can take a flyer and take that crap somewhere else. I want to see these. I want to see this film. But when you call them, they get testy and a little bit sensitive. And my thing is this: there are no band-aids for feelings. And if you're trying to put out the best possible product, get it on film, and then put the film on YouTube. YouTube is free. It is one of the best ways to market your product to players. If you have a player in college who may not go to the pros, and they can sit there and like type in the Predators or the Kings or whoever, and you mm-hmm. you can see years of game film. Hmm. They film their games. I need to go and I need to go be there. Some of these owners, I have more issue with some of these owners than some of the players because of the laziness. Everybody wants to own, nobody wants to work. That's that that's the issue. You have too many people who want the prestige of I own this team. Okay. Where's your film? Where are your uniforms? What do you do? Well, I'm gonna get to that. The kickoff classic is the 23rd. There are teams I guarantee you, even though I will not say them out loud because I'm just going by things that have plays on various teams. There are teams who still don't have the uniforms ordered. Yep. Yep. Then, and that's on the owners. That is not on the players. Like some of these owners, whew, oh my God, it's just it's it's frustrating to sit there and have to deal with people who like to sit there and run their mouths and don't do anything to back it up. Like, there was a guy who owned a team in the APDFL a while back. I'm not going to mention names, but Sherman, you knew who I'm talking about. He was a, a chatty little guy, and he was quick on trying to put his team in the best possible spot, but his team ended up folding permanently. That's on the, that's right. on the team. That's on the ownership. And players are not going to sit there and show up if they don't, if they're not going to take it seriously. That is my lone issue. If you're going to sit there and go away from your families, take all this mess seriously. Cause honestly, like this, this, this isn't football. Or this isn't, this isn't, this is football. This isn't basketball or baseball where you're not going to get hurt. Chances are, if you land on the field, somebody is trying to collide with you. And that, as all three of us know, that hurts. That's not a good feeling. And some of these owners need to take responsibility upon themselves to not be this lazy. With that said, before we go, Sherm, can you tell the people if you're in New Orleans and you're a player that is looking for a team, how do they get in touch with you? Um, they can always email the uh, Crescent, um, Crescent City, I'm sorry, CC Kings at cckingsfootball at gmail.com or they can call. Um, Myself at uh, 504-994-8931. Or simply, we practice every Tuesday and Thursday at St. Rock Playground at uh, for Belizean Fields. And um, we, we will take players up until the deadline. There you go, Matt. Now, if now you watch just as much film as I do. When you have to explain to a player what we compile that list, what are the two things that we try to compile that list, and how can people contact you on uh, social media? Um, when we compile that list, like you said, the biggest thing is film. Film, film, film. I in the sky doesn't lie. 
And I, uh, as I told you before, when I look at stuff, I look at how you how do you affect the play, even when you're not when you don't make the play. And a lot of players don't understand that concept. And um, you know, I get kids all the time that ask, uh, tell me, oh, I want to go play college ball. I want to do this. I want to do that. And um, uh, just today, I was telling uh, a kid. Yeah, you're the linebacker. Yeah, I want you to make the tackles. But if they're running a, a a power lead or anything like that, take on that lead block. If you blow up the play at the lead block, we'll make the play. And uh, that's what I look at. How do you affect the play? As you said, you can have a hundred a hundred tackles, but if I'm looking and this guy is blowing this play up for you every time, which me and you went back and forth on the player last year. We're not gonna say any names. Had a hundred and some tackles. And I kept telling you I don't I don't see him as a top player because the guy that was making the play for him was the the guy next to him. And um that's how I look at it. But if they if they want to contact me, it's Matthew Kelly on Facebook or they can contact me at me uh Kelly dot Matthew G at iCloud.com. I'm more than happy to help how I can. Sure. Thank you so much for being on our first show. Matt, as, as always, a pleasure. Yes, Thank sir. you so much. And we we invite pleasure. you back next Sunday. All Thank right. you so much, gentlemen. We'll see you next Sunday. All right, yeah. Thank, Thank you. you right, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks a lot. You entered access code 58853.